0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So today we are starting back into our series on the book of Psalms. And just to remind you, the book of Psalms in the Bible is a collection of ancient prayers and poetry that are here in the Bible to remind us that our hope is in God's promised King, the Messiah, who is Jesus. I believe that every psalm, all 150 psalms, every psalm, one way or another, is pointing to Jesus. And Psalm 45 does that in a fascinating way because Psalm 45 is a wedding poem. But it's not just a poem for any wedding, this is for the wedding of the promised king. And so right away I wanna just be super clear about the ultimate meaning of this psalm. There are three things I want us to see in Psalm 45 and I'm gonna try to say them as clearly as I can. Number one is this, the king here in Psalm 45 is Jesus. Number two, the king is Jesus and he is worthy of adoration. And number three, the king is Jesus and a wedding is coming. We're going to look at each of these three things in more detail, but first I'd like to pray again and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, as Max has prayed, so we pray now and praise you. We, we hallow your name. We thank you this morning, for this morning, and for this moment, we can gather together and open your word before us. We ask that in this morning, you would pour out afresh your Holy Spirit upon us. Show us the glory of your Son, we ask, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first thing to see here is that the king is Jesus. Now there there are two ways to approach the kingship theme in Psalm 45. One way is we could just read the entire Psalm and then at the end of reading the Psalm, we could ask, who is this ultimately about? The other way is that we can say from the start who this is ultimately about and then read this Psalm with that in mind and that's the way that we're gonna do it this morning, okay? In Psalm 45, the king here is about Jesus and there are three reasons why. I'm gonna go through these quickly so I need you just to hang with me here, okay? The first reason we know this is about Jesus is because in all of the kingship Psalms, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. So if you read throughout the book of Psalms, There are several Psalms that have the theme of kingship and sometimes these kingship Psalms are more directly about David or Solomon or God himself as king, but the office of king ultimately belongs to the Messiah who is the son of David and God the son. And so right away, anytime we're reading the Psalms and we see the mention of a king, like we do here in Psalm 45, when we see the mention of a king, we should think, This is telling us something about Jesus. That's first. The second reason that we know the king here is Jesus is because in the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter one, when the author of Hebrews is describing the glory and uniqueness of Jesus, he quotes from Psalm 45. So I'm gonna read to you. This is Hebrews chapter one, verses eight and nine. He writes, but of the son of Jesus, God says, quote, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of a brightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, end quote. That is, in Hebrews 1, that is verbatim, Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7, which means that the the New Testament authors, without a doubt, they understood Psalm 45 to be about Jesus. And so we all should say, if it's good enough for the New Testament, it's good enough for us, right? Like this just, Hebrews chapter 1 just settles it for us. Psalm 45 is about Jesus. But also, uh, thirdly, I want us to look more here at the context surrounding Psalm 45. In, In the surrounding Psalms of 45, just notice this. Right before we get to Psalm 45, look at Psalm 43 and Psalm 44. In Psalm 43 and Psalm 44, the psalmist is in a desperate place. In Psalm 43, the psalmist says his soul is cast down. He, he feels rejected. He's in mourning and he's oppressed, verse two. And what he does is in Psalm 43, he begins to preach to himself. He's preaching to himself to hope in God, Psalm 43, verse five. And then in the next Psalm, in Psalm 44, verse nine, the psalmist says again that God has rejected his people, and he's asking God why. The psalmist says that God's people have become the laughingstock of their enemies. And the psalmist implies here that God has treated his people unjustly, which means this is a very low moment for the psalmist, This is a low moment in the Psalms, and yet still, if you see Psalm 44, verse 23, the psalmist practices here what he preaches to himself in Psalm 43, verse five. The psalmist hopes in God. The psalmist here in Psalm 44, verse 23, he hopes in God enough to pray. He calls on God to act. Look at Psalm 44, verse 23. The psalmist says, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. And then the psalmist concludes Psalm 44 with a clear petition for salvation. The psalmist says in verse 26, look at verse 26, The Psalmist, he says, rise up, speaking to God, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's the last verse in Psalm 44. Does everyone see, in Psalm 44, the last verse, does everyone see what the psalmist is asking here? You gotta see it. The very last verse here of Psalm 44, the psalmist is asking God to help his people. The psalmist is asking God to redeem his people for the sake of his steadfast love. Psalm 44 ends with that bold request, and so now we have to, wonder how will God answer that request if Psalm 44 ends with the request oh God save us how will God answer well Psalm 45 comes after Psalm 44 and Psalm 45 opens and it happens to be about a king because the king is the answer How will God save his people? How will God send salvation? He will do it by sending his king. And Yahweh's king who saves is Jesus. So Psalm 45 is about Jesus. This is a Psalm about Jesus. That's the first thing to see. The second thing to see is, is that the king here is Jesus, and he is worthy of adoration. Look at verse one. In verse one, the psalmist is being, he's, he's being unusually self-aware. This is the only time we see this in all the psalms. The, the psalmist is describing both his emotion And he's describing what he's doing. Like the actual song, the actual poem doesn't start until verse two. But in verse one, the psalmist wants us to know the process. He wants us to know where this song is coming from. Look what he says there in verse one. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen in the hand of a ready scribe. John Calvin says that verse one here is actually another reason that we know this psalm is about Jesus because nobody talks about human kings this way. We can hear in verse one the exuberance and the joy of the psalmist. There's not a trace here of any kind of inhibition. The psalmist in Psalm 45, he loves the king and he wants everybody to know about it. He loves the king, I want you to know. That's what he's saying in Psalm 45. I love him, let me tell you how much I love him. And my guess is that for most of us, most of the time, we don't really know what that's like. I just wanna slow down for a minute on this thought. I wonder for us, I wonder if we know really anything about this kind of overflowing love for Jesus. Like, I mean, can you imagine that when you pray, you just, can you imagine that when you pray, you just can't help but overflow in praise for Jesus? See, most of the time for us, just to pray at all, right? We have to like, you know, we gotta like jumpstart our hearts just to even pray. But could you imagine this, that that when we open our mouths to to speak about Jesus, we're just gushing forth in adoration. Could you imagine the praise of Jesus coming so easily for us? Man, I want that so badly for us I want that for our church I want the praise of Jesus to come as easy for us as it does for the psalmist here and so I I just want to say to you whatever it is that is standing in your way whatever it is that is standing in our way to that, that, that keeps us from adoring Jesus like this I pray that God would take it away just take it away remove it from us A simple question just to think about for a minute. Do you love Jesus? Like it's not a trick, it's not a trick question. I, I don't want you to, to overcomplicate it. Just just think about, about the question. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? I can remember the moment in my life when it first occurred to me that I love Jesus. I remember I I was in college, I was standing in the kitchen of my apartment in the afternoon frying an egg. And I was a Christian, I I believed in Jesus, I had heard the gospel for as long as I could remember, but I th- I think that because I knew what Jesus' love looked like for me, I always kind of felt like I couldn't actually say that I loved Jesus, it was something like that. But I was standing there that day in my apartment, in the kitchen, and I was praying, I was talking to Jesus, and I don't know how to describe it. Other than that, in that moment, standing there, it occurred to to me that I loved him and I thought however imperfect it is or whatever however imperfect it might be my heart in that moment it welled up with affections for Jesus I I I thought I love him I love him and, and when, when the thought came, when the, when the sense came, it moved me to tears. I was moved. I love him. And then I ate my egg. <laughs> and I just, I just, I just, I just, I remember the day. I remember the moment. And here's the deal. I remember that. I remember that experience because that's just pretty much, to be honest, that's just pretty much all I want in life. All I want is to know the love of Jesus for me and to love him. That's, that's really, mainly, that's all I want for you, church. As your pastor and as your brother, all I want for us is to love Jesus. That's what I want for these cities, right? We want to know the love of Jesus and we want to love Him. We want to know Jesus the way that the psalmist knows Him here. We want the adoration and the praise of Jesus to come as easy for us as it does for the psalmist. Where when we talk about Jesus or when we talk to Jesus, we don't run out of things to say. We never get stuck, we, we, we never We never come to a a, a place where we just say, "I, I think I'm finished now. But we open our mouths and adoration gushes forth because Jesus is worthy of such adoration. That's the point, see. We want to love him because he's lovable. He's the most lovable person in the universe. We want to adore him because he is adorable. We're not trying to work something up here. We're not trying to put something on. We just want to say of Jesus what he deserves. He deserves our adoration. Look what the Psalmist says. Look what the Psalmist says in Psalm 45. First, Jesus our King is better. There is nobody like him because he surpasses every comparison. Verse 2 You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Now, to be clear, this description of Jesus here in Psalm 45 is Jesus in his resurrected glory. In his first advent, when Jesus humbled himself and came into this world in the first century, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53. But in his resurrected body, Jesus as our glorified and exalted king, he is the most handsome of the sons of men, which is the ancient Hebrew way of saying that if we could see Jesus now, if we could see him now, we would not be able to take our eyes off of him because he is better than anything we've ever seen before. He is radiant in glory. Verse 7, look at verse 7, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. See, Jesus here is set apart. My beloved is chiefest among 10,000, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, which means line up Imagine this, light up 10,000 kings, 10,000 kings, put them all in a row and consider each one, one by one, and you will find out what the apostle Peter says in John six, that there is nobody out there like Jesus. He is the chiefest among 10 trillion. Only Jesus has the words of life. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is in a category of wonder all his own. And when we think about him, we should think about that. When we think of Jesus and pray to Jesus, we are thinking and speaking to someone who is unlike anyone else we know because he's better than anything we can imagine. Adore him. Adore him. But also here the psalmist tells us that Jesus conquers in righteousness. Look at verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Peoples fall under you. So Jesus our king will always conquer and he will conquer righteously in all ways. We can never separate his power from his justice. Which reminds us of John's description of Jesus in Revelation 19 when John saw the heavens open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. At one level in Revelation 19, this scene here is terrifying because Jesus is described as having eyes like a flame of fire. He has a dazzling crown on his head. His robe is covered in blood and the armies of heaven are following behind him. That's a terrifying vision. But then we remember that Jesus is faithful and true and that everything Jesus does is right. He never does anything wrong. He never misuses his power. He has never said a wrong word or taken a wrong step or given bad directions. Jesus is a ruler who is completely and exhaustively perfect. In Jesus, the greatest power belongs to the greatest hands of good. And so, Jesus strikes down the nations and He heals the brokenhearted. He rules with a rod of iron and He makes the blind to see. He he slays the wicked with the sword from His mouth and He says to the dead little girl in Mark 5, Sweetie, wake up. Jesus destroys his enemies, and for his people, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He has the greatest power, and he has the best heart. The scepter of your kingdom, Lord Jesus, is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore we adore you. Adore him, church. Adore Jesus, our king. He conquers in righteousness. And also we see here, Jesus, our king, is eternally blessed. This is verses two and seven. The end of verse two, therefore God has blessed you forever The end of verse seven, therefore God, your God has anointed you, anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then in verse eight, we read about the signs of God's blessings. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces, string instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor at your right hand stands the queen in gold of ophir. Now in verse seven, the word anointed there is where we get the word Messiah. It's the word Messiah which is translated into the word Christ. So you could say here in verse seven, God your God has Christed you because to be the Christ is to be the most blessed of God. Which reminds us of Jesus' baptism. When in the baptism of Jesus we see that the Christ of God, the Messiah of God is also the Son of God. God the Father says of Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my Son and I love him, I'm happy with him. That's what God the Father says of Jesus. And that gladness of God surrounded Jesus throughout all of his earthly ministry. We know that even Jesus when he faced the cross, when Jesus prayed in the garden just before he entered into the valley of suffering and death, Jesus prayed that his disciples would know the love that the Father has for him. Jesus wanted his disciples, he wanted us to see the glory that God the Father had given him. The book of Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which means that even in his suffering the blessing of God was on the mind of Jesus Jesus thought of God's joy of his joy he thought of him being seated on the throne which is what Psalm 45 envisions here Psalm 45 gives us an image of Jesus after his suffering and death. This is after Jesus was raised from the dead, after Jesus was ascended. The vision here is Jesus eternally blessed on his throne receiving the adoration he deserves and he is the king here we see with his queen. That's the last thing to say here about Psalm 45. This is the third thing to say. The king of Psalm 45 is Jesus and a wedding is coming. Psalm 45 verse nine, take a look there at the end of verse nine. This is the first mention of the queen in this psalm. And so if the king is Jesus, we should ask, who is she? And what well, we know from the New Testament that the bride of Christ is his church. That's the metaphor of the church that we find in the book of Ephesians chapter five and also in the book of Revelation chapters 19 and 21. We also see this alluded to in the gospels. Ultimately, the church is in view here in Psalm 45 and how she gets to be here is the best part of the story. The bride is here. The bride is here because Jesus came here to rescue her. This is the bride, in Psalm 45, this is the bride for whom Jesus died and was raised. Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 tells us this. He, he's, Ephesians 5, Paul says that Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church, his bride, and he gave himself up for her, so that he might, listen to this in, Psalm, in, in Ephesians 5. Jesus loved the church He loved the church's bride, he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And these last few lines here in Ephesians 5 from the Apostle Paul, this is Paul looking to a time in the future Psalm 45 is doing the same thing. Notice that in Psalm 45, the mention of the bride in verse 10 is a summons for her to bow to the king. The psalmist describes the bride here as beautiful, but her beauty comes after we see her allegiance. This is a vision of the church fully sanctified and cleansed and having been washed, having been purified by Jesus, the church is presented to Jesus as his bride in glory. The church will be radiant like we see here in Ephesians 5 and Psalm 45 and on that day of her radiance, there will be a wedding. That's the image here. It's a wedding. A wedding is coming. Speaking of weddings, I I think that Psalm 45 fits really nicely as the first Psalm to kick off our summer because here in the summer, we are in wedding season, right? Just I wonder, how many of you in here, how many of you at least know about a wedding that's gonna be happening in the next few months? Just raise your hand. It's wedding season, right? Several of us have weddings on our calendar. We're planning to go to them. Weddings are something to look forward to. Weddings are meant to be looked forward to. And the same goes for this wedding. We are to look forward to this last great wedding that is to come. John, John the apostle John describes this wedding for us in Revelation 19 as the marriage of the lamb. Revelation 19 verse 6, John says in his vision, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And with that we hear kingship, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. See, the rejoicing and exalting and glory and purity of this future day is so great. It is so great that we can hardly believe it. What's gonna happen on that future day? It, It is a joy that is so thick that we have to stretch our imaginations to the limit just to be able to think about it. And the image of a wedding, sea is meant to help us do that. Because in our humanity, in this world, in this life, weddings are about the happiest events that we get to celebrate, right? Weddings are happy, jovial, occasions. Weddings are full of mirth and rejoicing and dancing and laughing. We're all having a good time. It's a wedding. A wedding's coming, right? That's what weddings are. They're the happiest thing we get to celebrate in this life. And every wedding, see, is meant to point to this. There's actually one moment, especially in weddings. The whole wedding is great everything. But there's one moment especially that I think is the most profound, and it happens quickly. It's right at the beginning of the ceremony. It's when the whole church, the whole congregation stands, and the doors in the back open, and behold, there is the bride. And I always tell the groom, Every wedding I get to do, I always tell the groom to anticipate that moment and to know that when those doors open and when he sees his bride and everyone standing to honor her, when he sees his bride in that moment, he is the richest man on the planet. He is. He absolutely is. And now to think that one day Jesus, our King, will see us like that. He'll see us that way, us, us, us. (laughs) his church, we, we who have been redeemed, sinners as we are, broken as we are, weak as we are, one day he will see us, his rescued people redeemed by his blood, he will see us as the sign of his blessing forever. And he will take joy in us and we will take joy in Him, and it will be, and look, I don't, I don't mean this in any trite kind of way. I mean this as deeply as I can say it, okay? On that day, it will be happily ever after. It, it will be fullness of joy. It will be pleasures forevermore because God's joy, the joy of God that we will know on this day is deeper than the universe. And this one great wedding celebration, this is where everything's headed. This is where we're going, this wedding that is to come. And that's what now brings us to the table. First I want to say to anyone here who does not trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, I I call you now, put your faith in Him, bow to this King and be saved. And for those of you who do trust Him, for those of you who do bow to Him, at this table each week, we come here to eat the bread and to drink the cup. And when we do, we are proclaiming the death of Jesus until He comes, which means, until He comes, which means what we're doing is, we are looking forward to the wedding celebration that Psalm 45 describes. And so this morning, as you receive the bread and as you receive the cup, receive it in that hope receive it in the hope of this wedding that is to come we'll serve the bread first the body of Jesus is the true bread let us serve you